Have you noticed that, there, you, that really there's a lot more pushback around Christmas than there used to be? There's a ton of pushback around Christmas. You used to be able to say Merry Christmas and be okay, right? I mean, now you get this sideways glance from people almost are like they're asking, what do you mean by that? Uh, I mean, I hope you have a Merry Christmas. Like, no agenda here, just Merry Christmas. Store employees are trained to say Happy Holidays to avoid offending someone. I mean, seriously, like wishing someone a Merry Christmas is offensive. If someone walked up to me and said Happy Hanukkah, I'd say thank you. You know, I mean, really, uh, if somebody even said Happy Festivus, I'd say thank you. I'm okay. It doesn't matter. Festivus for the rest of us. Um, but really, it's not about Christmas, is it? It's really not the issue. The real hostility isn't toward Christmas. It's towards Christianity. That's the issue. There's a resistance, there's a pushback against Christianity that has been increasing for a long, long time. For a lot of people, resistance to Christianity revolves around this question, is it true? Is it true? Is this true? And maybe that's you. Maybe you've still got some of those questions. Maybe that's someone you know, someone you love. And if someone doesn't believe the story of the birth of Jesus and the story of Christianity that results from that is true, they have a good reason not to believe. Why do I say that? I say that because most people are somewhat reasonable people. And if you don't believe, you have reasons that you don't believe. And those reasons are good reasons to them, right? And so they have good reasons not to believe, at least in their mind. Uh, no one is going to disbelieve something for a reason they know to be wrong. They've got good reasons. I may not agree with their reasons, but they've got good reasons. Uh, and so for a lot of people, this is kind of the question they wrestle with. Is it even true? Did Jesus even exist? Did he do all these things? And I really love talking about this. This is one of my favorite topics, one of my favorite things to talk about. And what better time than in this season where we remember and celebrate his birth? So let's look at this question together today, especially this word, the it part. Is it true? What is it in that question? You have to start there because the question that you have to wrestle to the ground is, what is the it? What is it that you think you have to embrace in order to become a Christian? What is the it that we hang our hat on? For many people, the it is the Bible. And I would say that's unfortunate because there were tens of thousands of Christians before there was the Bible. Think back. Jesus' followers didn't have a Bible. They had Jesus. And so really, before leather-bound, gold-edged pages, red letters, and sword drills were ever a thing, if you, ever, if you grew up in Sunday school, you know what a sword drill is, there were generations of Jesus' followers before that. So the it that you should wrestle with is not, is the Bible true? Uh, it's, it's a different it. So I hope that's not your it, because the Bible, and this is a big deal, especially if you if somebody has walked away from faith at some point in their life over the Bible, the Bible did not create Christianity. God inspired Christians, his followers, to create the Bible. Okay, we got to get the order right. Huge distinction there. Is the Bible true? Absolutely. The Bible is the authoritative word of God. I believe that wholeheartedly. But it isn't the primary question that we need to be asking as we look into this topic. More and more in our culture, the question isn't so much, is it true? But this question, is it good? Is it good? It, even if it's true, 
Is it good? Even if it's partially true, is it good? Is Christianity good for society? Is Christianity good for humanity? Is Christianity good for children? Is Christianity good for you? Is it good for me? Is it dangerous? Is it harmful? Should we dispense with all religion? Because all religion is harmful, including the message of Jesus, including the message of Christianity. Now, all that in mind, let's focus in on where we're going today. When we hear news that is not good, when you hear news that's not good, we instinctively hope it's not true. We push back against news that's not good, hoping that it's not true. We do this naturally. This is just human nature. When you hear something that's not good, you hope it's not true. That's our, our gut level reaction. So when you find out that Netflix is doubling their monthly subscription rate, more than likely you're saying, I hope that's not true. Okay? Uh, it's not true. I just made that up. Um, but then you got to find out if it's true, right? Or we hear that Amazon is going to go back to just selling books and cancel every other department, which means we actually have to go back to the mall. It's terrifying. Um, that's not good news, so we hope it's not true. But the opposite is true as well, right? When you hear good news, you hope it is true. When you hear good news, you lean into it. You hope that it's true. You, you, once again, human nature. I mean, imagine this. What if we were told processed sugar extends life expectancy? <laughs> See? You're leaning in, right? I mean, I, I, is that not the best news ever? That we can go back to Lucky Charms and I can eat them again? That Melissa would allow such death in a box back into our house? Uh, and, and we could put the word sugar back into the title of cereal names again? Remember that? They used to be called sugar corn pops? Not just corn pops? I will always call them sugar corn pops. Um, and I made this up, but I think this might be the best clickbait ever in the history of clickbait. You know, if you wrote an article, put it online with that title, people would be clicking that all day long. Um, I would click that. Processed sugar extends life expectancy. And when you saw that, that would be good news. I click on every article that talks about the benefits of drinking coffee. Every time I see one of those articles, I'm like, yeah, I want to read that. I mean, it's just I want, I, want to, I want to see the good news. I want to hear about it. And when you saw that, it would be good news. It's like, what do you mean? I can eat whatever I want? So you would hope it's true. Now, it wouldn't necessarily be true. Okay, full disclosure, made that one up. Uh, and the fact that you hope it's true doesn't make it true. Okay, and to be clear, just the fact that it's good news does not make it true. My point is simply this. When you hear something that's good or you hear about something that's good, you hope that it's true. You lean in. That's human nature. So when the announcement of Jesus' birth was first announced, or when the announcement that Jesus was being born was first announced, it was actually described, this is so interesting, it was described on day one as this, good news that will bring great joy. That's how the birth of Jesus was announced by the angels. And then here's the surprise, here's the part that I don't think anybody would have believed, because the world was too divided at this point, especially in Judea and Galilee, in that particular part of the world, everything was segmented, there were different castes in society. Listen to the announcement an angel made to some shepherds in Luke chapter 2. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, referring to the shepherds, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. Here it is. I bring you good news that will bring great joy. And here's the kicker to all people. To all people. That's the surprise. That's the message of Jesus. And they didn't know what the message was yet. 
They didn't even know what was happening. They didn't know what was coming, um, that, but that, this would be good news. Okay, great. We got this. Good news. I love that. Uh, and then they said, uh, after that, it would spark joy. Awesome. Love that. Good news. All right, I'm in. It's going to bring joy. All right, let's go. For all people. And then, wait, what? You know, like we hear in some of our households when people are talking. The Jews, the Gentiles, the Romans, the Samaritans, the Sumerians, and anybody who'd ever lived and would ever live. This is for them. That this message was so good, it would be good news of great joy for all people, is what the angels pronounced. So here's the question. Is it good news of great joy for all people? Was it good news and great joy for all people? And if so, why the resistance? Why are we pushing back on this good news? Because back to what I said originally, when you hear good news, you hope it's true. You may find out it's not true, but you hope it's true. When you hear good news, you lean in, like the old E.F. Hutton commercials. Now, I'm aging myself there, dating myself. Uh, they, they, these old commercials where the one guy would say, well, my broker said that now's a good time to jump into the stock market. What does your broker say? And the other guy walking in with him would say, well, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says, and then everybody for a quarter mile around them would stop what they were doing and lean in. <laughs> and, and it was just that, and then the commercial would end. Uh, when E.F. Hutton talks... People listen. Uh, and so it's kind of that same thing with, uh, how many of you remember these commercials, okay? Am I alone here? All right. I feel like I'm the youngest person in the room who remembers these commercials, so I don't know. Uh, but they were, they were great commercials. Um, and so we lean in. And if people lean in to good news, why isn't ever, that was an example of why I shouldn't go off note, okay? When I go off note, I get on weird tangents. Um, <laughs> But if people lean into good news, why isn't everybody in the world, why isn't everybody in our community around us, why isn't everybody in our nation, when it comes to this story, leaning in, hoping it's true? Even if they decide at the end of the day it's not. Why aren't they leaning in, hoping it's true? In fact, the original version of this story, the original version was not called the Bible. The original version of the good news was simply called the gospel. The gospel comes from two old English words. The word is Godspell. Godspell means good story. And when they decided what do we call this thing, we, we call it good news. What else do we call it? We call it the gospel, a really, really good story. And then in the language the New Testament was written in, euangelion is the Greek word that we translate as gospel, and it's translated in our English Bible, good news. So from the very beginning, don't miss this, even if someone has walked away from faith, you're thinking about walking away, or you're reaching for the doorknob as we speak, this is amazing. In the first century, at the epicenter of the action, at the epicenter of the activity surrounding this story, when this whole concept first touched down on planet Earth and intersected with human beings in our timeline, it was considered such good news for all people. They named it Good News. It's not very original, okay? Eh, it's the best we can come up with. And truthfully, it's the best of Scripture. It's everything. This is good news that will bring great joy for all people. 
And the message of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus and the claims of Jesus all caught on, even though it was sandwiched between the Roman emperor and the Jewish temple and likely to get crushed out of existence by these two powerful forces, but it caught on anyway, and here's why. Because when you hear something you consider to be good news, you lean in even before you know it's true because there's a hope that is birthed inside of you even before you determine it's false. But initially, people lean in. And one of the things, in fact, maybe the thing that breaks my heart the most, more than anything in our culture, and there's lots of things in our culture that break my heart, um, is that so many people are leaning away from the message of Christianity because somehow they've come to the conclusion that it's not good news. It's not that they think it's false. It's that they don't think it's good news. And they lean away. And it really, it's not their fault. Because more often than not, they either bumped into, ran into, did business with, went to school with, were raised by some people who carried a version of the faith, a version of Christianity, a different version of the message of Jesus, an incomplete version, and based on that observation, determined somewhere along the way, this is not good news. I don't even care if it's true. Whatever this is, this is not good news, and I don't want to live my life that way. But you should know because you have to decide for yourself, the original news, the initial news was so good that it was compelling. In fact, Luke, who recorded the message and the life of Jesus, uh, we're going to talk about Luke in just a minute. Luke records Jesus saying something so interesting. Here's what Jesus said in Luke 16. Until John the Baptist, the law of Moses and the message of the prophets were your guides. But now the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone is eager to get in. The law of Moses and the messages of the prophets, that's what we call the Old Testament. That's what they had. In the first century, they didn't call it the Old Testament because it wasn't old anything. It was now. It wasn't old. Uh, it was the Hebrew Bible. It was the Jewish text. It was the law and the prophets. Uh, it was their sacred scripture. And, and then Jesus said a really critical word, but. Until John Baptist, the law of Moses and the messages of the prophets were your guides, but now. Now it's different. The law and the prophets were not good news of great joy for all people. They weren't for everyone. The law and the prophets or our Old Testament, it was good news for the ancient Hebrew people who had just come out of slavery. They needed a moral and civil and judicial and ceremonial law to live by. They needed something that helped them understand who Yahweh was. And at the same time, it pointed forward to the coming of the Messiah. And the law of the prophets was great news for the ancient Hebrew people, but it was not good news of great joy for the entire world. So with the coming of Jesus, there's this amazing transition that takes place. And unfortunately, part of the reason sometimes the good news doesn't sound like such good news is we mix the message of the old and the new. And we kind of just hybridize everything and we create our own gospel, which isn't the gospel at all. At all. If any part of the good news is changed, it ceases to be the good news. Uh, so listen to what Jesus said. He said that the law and the prophets were proclaimed up until the time of John the Baptist. In other words, when Jesus stepped onto the pages of history as a grown-up. John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus. And so Jesus came on the scene on the heels of John the Baptist. He was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And then Jesus began his, his teaching and miraculous ministry on the other side of that. <clears throat> 
And he said, but now. In other words, since that time that I've stepped into this world and begun to teach the good news of the kingdom of God, since then, the values of the kingdom of God, what God is truly like, how God truly loves, how God views mankind, how God wants mankind to view him, how God wants the human race to treat each other, these brand new values, this brand new world system, the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is leaning toward, leaning into, fighting to get in, trying to get close to, everything is different now. When people understand what God is offering, they may not be convinced it's true, but when they hear the message, at least the way the message should be preached, when they understand what Jesus came to offer, when they understand what God is truly like, when they understand that Jesus is as close to understanding what God is like as they will ever get close to, that he's the most perfect possible picture of God here on earth, when people understand this, they are going to lean in. They're going to want it to be true. So if the life and the teaching and the message of Jesus doesn't strike you or someone you're close to as good news, maybe it's because the version they grew up with, the version they walked away from, the version maybe you're thinking about walking away from, isn't the original version. It's not the authentic good news. It isn't the good news. It wasn't the gospel. It was gospel-like but it wasn't the gospel because the original version was compelling. The original version was worth telling. And so they told it. Now, this is amazing to think about. In the first century, very few people had their stories told. Very few people had their stories told. In the first century, second century, third century, and prior centuries to those, very few people had their stories documented because, A, most people couldn't read, so what was the point? B, writing was expensive, and writing utensils were expensive. It was a very serious undertaking when you went to record someone's personal history. The only way you got your story told was you had to be wealthy, and you had to hire a scribe to record the events of your life. So you had to be vain and rich, and then you got your story told. In ancient times, the only stories of people we know are famous rich people. That's really all we've got because they paid to have somebody write their story. And usually it's probably not very authentic because they were paid and they had to make them look good. And they paid for them to do it during their life to document it. And then they would edit it, make sure it made them look good. So the fact, the fact that we have an account, even one account of the life of Jesus is amazing because Jesus was a nobody. On the stage of the world, Jesus was not a somebody. He was a day laborer from Galilee, and when his story was written, he was already gone. He didn't hire somebody. He wasn't around to pay someone. And Luke, at the very beginning of his, his account of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third gospel writer, with the very first word, he says something that is so historically significant, so easily overlooked. It is the very first word of his gospel. He says something that should stop everyone in their tracks with the knowledge that we just gained. And here's what he says. He says, Many, many, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. This is the very first word in the Gospel of Luke, many. Now, quick question, don't answer out loud. How many is many? I mean, really, when you think about it, how many is many? The answer, it depends on what you're counting, right? If children, that's one thing. Jeff and Melissa have many, okay? Um, <laughs> stars in the sky, that's something else, how, how many is many? Houses, that's something else. You own two, that's many. You own many houses at two. But how many is many? No matter what you're counting, for the most part, unless it's your children, is four really many? Is 40 many? 
I don't know, but listen to what Luke says from the first century. He says, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. This is astounding. Luke says, look, I'm about to give you an account of the life of Jesus. That's what you're going to be reading here. But you need to know my account is not the only one. And neither is Mark, and neither is John's, and neither is Matthew's. We're not the only four. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Quick question, and I'm not trying to make you feel bad about yourself. We live in modern times now. Everybody can write a novel. Everybody can write a story. It's cheap to write. We don't even write anymore. We type. We swipe. Uh, it's so inexpensive. Creating a novel or story, recording somebody's life is easy. But let me ask you this. How many, do you know how many people will set out to write an account of your life? I do. Not many. <laughs> And it's cheap. It'd be so easy to drop an account of your life. And you're, you're wonderful people, and I'm a wonderful person, but there aren't going to be a whole bunch of people trying to make sure they get all the details of our lives right. It ain't going to happen. We'll be lucky if we have something nice on our tombstone. So that, this is the question to wrestle to the ground. This is where faith begins. This is the thing that maybe that's easy to overlook. Why? Why so many? Why did all these people, when this was not the cultural norm, when this is not what people did, when this was a vast undertaking, why did many people set out to record the life of Jesus? Why did so many people try to document the life of someone who was already gone? There was nothing in it for them. They weren't going to get paid. Why did they spend so much time and energy and money documenting the life of somebody that had come and gone, who was a nobody from nowhere, who traveled maybe 25, 30 miles from home his entire life, didn't write anything, was only in the public eye for three, maybe four years. And we have four complete accounts of his life by four different people. And there were many more who tried. And the answer is this, because in the first century, in the land of Judea, something significant happened. And the reason it was documented by so many is because what happened was something overwhelmingly good. I don't know what your version of Christianity is, but the original version, it was good. OG Christianity was original good. It was so good that people wanted it to be true before they were convinced it was true. Here's what Luke goes on to say. He says about all these many who have set out to record the incredible story of Jesus in verse 2. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. So these are eyewitness accounts. This isn't me just trying to cobble together some stories I've heard. And these were eyewitnesses, and they were servants of Jesus. This is the introduction to his gospel record. Verse 3, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, in other words, I'm not just doing this from memory, I'm talking to everybody I can talk to who was an eyewitness or a friend of an eyewitness who was there, who knew somebody who was there, I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, meaning the beginning of Jesus' life, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus was. Luke refers to him twice. Uh, but our best guess is that he was a wealthy, curious Christian and that he had heard these teachings of Jesus. He had become a Jesus follower. Maybe he knew somebody who had seen the resurrected Jesus, so he was all in. This is all hypothesis. But he wanted to understand the story. And he wanted to know the story from the beginning all the way up to the end. And so he said to Luke, Luke, would you spend your time, use your skills to investigate and put together an orderly account of the life of Jesus? 
But listen to what Luke says next to Theophilus. The reason I'm doing this for you, and the reason he did this for you and for me was, and this is awesome, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. That's why Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. You have been taught the life and the message of Jesus already, Theophilus, but I want you to have confidence in what you have been taught. So I'm going to put together a detailed account for you so you can be sure. Little did he know that his account that he was writing for a single individual would be one of the four accounts of the life of Jesus that would survive thousands of years. That's amazing. That's incredible. Many, many, many ignored the cost and pushed through the barriers and set out to record the life of Jesus. Why was this story worth telling? The story was worth telling because it was good, because people leaned in. Now, the angels telling about his birth were the first ones to announce that it was good. But it wasn't until Jesus stepped onto the banks of the Jordan River as an adult that the message became good for the people who followed him. That's when people experienced the goodness of this message for the very first time. Their eyes were open to it. And how good was this message? It was real good. It was so good that forgiveness, and perhaps this is what maybe first intersects our lives today, if you're a Jesus follower, that forgiveness of sin would be announced ahead of time. You will be forgiven. You see, in, in the Old Testament, it was all retroactive. They, they would go do the sacrifice once a year to pay for the sins of all the people from the year before. Now, it's forward-focused. Now, our forgiven sin is projected into the future. And you could ask God for forgiveness and actually be forgiven. You didn't have to sacrifice any more animals. You didn't have to work for it. And not only was this good news, this was brand new news. This was nothing like anything they'd ever heard before. For some, this was disturbing news. This made the entire temple system in Jerusalem antiquated instantly. Suddenly, there was no need for the things that they've given their lives to and built their entire lives around. In fact, it's Luke that tells us the story that Jesus is teaching one day. And he's in a wealthy person's home. It's a big home. Living room was full of people. Hey, look at that. Uh, and there were people in the next rooms. There were people in the windows. There were people outside straining to hear because wherever Jesus went and wherever Jesus taught, there are crowds. In almost every chapter in the book of Mark, if you ever read Mark's gospel, he describes crowds everywhere Jesus goes because his teaching was so unique and it was new and people wanted to believe that he was who he claimed to be and people wanted to believe that God was the way that Jesus presented God to be because it was good. And while he's teaching, they hear a noise on the roof. And they look up, and then he keeps teaching, and there's more noise and more noise. And then there's mortar falling down into the room. And, and they stop for a second, then they get back, and suddenly there's a ray of light that pierces the dark room coming in from the ceiling. And then there's another ray of light, and they look up, and now there's a face peering at them from the ceiling. And Jesus looks up, and he says, do ye not know that we also have an 11 o'clock service? Come back in an hour. Um, now, now, now there is a face, and suddenly there is more than one person up there, and they're taking the tiles off the roof of the house. Next thing you know, it's dark again. They look up, and they have some sort of hammock thing, and they, they're lowering a stretcher down, and he gets to the floor, and, and, and they make space, and there's this dude laying there, and he can't walk, and he's paralyzed, and it's all quiet now as everyone waits to see what happens next. And in this crowd in the living room are some Pharisees, and some teachers of the law that have come from Jerusalem because they're shadowing Jesus to try to learn what this strange rabbi has to say and whether it's kosher. 
because he's teaching things no one has ever taught before, and he's making promises about God that are in conflict with the way that they viewed God and the way that they had taught that God really was. They're teaching a version of God different than he really was, is what the Pharisees were teaching. Uh, and, and so Jesus came to show us the truth. He came to show us who God is. In fact, one of the reasons so many walk away from faith today or and throughout history I really believe is because somebody presented a God to them that's very different than the God that Jesus presented to his first century followers. I believe that's why most people walk away from faith. And Jesus looks down at this man, he smiles, and then he says the strangest thing. He said, your sins are forgiven. To which the guy looks up at Jesus and thought, that's not why I'm here. Your sins are forgiven. I didn't even ask that. And the Pharisees now and the teachers of the law, they're like, wait, 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 okay.
where were we? <laughs> so we all fall short of this standard of a holy God who loves the people that you've offended. And Jesus has the ability to forgive your sin, to make you right with God. That's good news. But it got even better than this. Get this. According to Jesus, anybody, anybody, regardless of their starting point, regardless of what they know, regardless of what they believe, regardless even of what they have believed about Jesus previously, anybody can choose to take a step to follow Jesus from where they are right now. Everyone is invited to take a step to follow Jesus. This is not just good news. This is incredible news. We know this because Luke records a different event, this encounter where Jesus and his guys come to a big intersection of what they would consider a highway. It wasn't really a highway like we think of a highway, but there was a toll booth. So, you know, but instead of a plastic arm, it was a Roman spear. And everybody had to stop and pay the toll, and the guy collecting the toll in Luke's account is named Levi. He's a tax collector. And the reputation of tax collectors in the first century was less than stellar. They weren't just disliked, they were despised. Uh, they didn't have any friends other than other tax collectors and other people who weren't allowed into the temple, just like them. Anywhere close to the temple, they were ceremonially unclean. And with regard to spiritual potential, it was over. They'd better enjoy this life because in the next life, it's not going to be good for them. That's Levi. And Jesus walks up to Levi and he says, and maybe it's for your sake or my sake that Luke records this story. He says, Levi, follow me. Follow me. And Levi is staring in disbelief at Jesus. Like, you want me to follow you? You're a rabbi. See the robe? I see your followers. In fact, I see that your followers are giving me an evil look right now. Like, you're kidding. He's not going to be part of our thing, is he? You want me to follow you? Come on, Jesus. Look, no rabbi has ever invited me to follow them. No rabbi has ever talked to me. In fact, you know how the rabbis talk about me? They use me in their sermons. I'm a negative sermon illustration. Be careful. You'll grow up and be like Levi. Uh, Got to be careful. You grow up and be a big tax collector. I'm the worst of the worst. And besides, you know what I'm up to because I'm up to it right now. I'm collecting taxes. It's not like you met me at the grocery store and said, follow me. And I said, by the way, I'm a tax collector. Oh, didn't know that. Um, everybody knows what I do. I'm doing it, and you want me to follow you. That's exactly what Jesus wanted, and that church is good news. Regardless of how low you go, how far you wander, how deep a pit you've dug, you dug your own pit. You've become your own worst enemy. Jesus says you can start right there and follow me. And then the real surprising moment, according to Luke and the other gospel writers, is that Levi gets up and says, all right, I'll follow you. Where are we going? And Jesus says, we're going to your house. And all the other disciples are like, I'm not going to his house. His house has tax collector cooties. We can't go in there. If we go to his house, we're going to be so unclean that we won't be able to go to the temple ever again. And they get to his house. There's a bunch of other people just like Levi. The Pharisees are out in the cul-de-sac because they can't even. You know why teenage girls always travel in groups of three, five, or seven? Because they just can't even. Anyway. Anyway, the Pharisees don't even step on the yard, and they send a message in to Jesus. What in the world are you doing? You're disrupting everything. You say you're a man sent from God. This is not how God operates. We all have our opinion about how God should operate, don't we? Jesus smiled, and he sent them a message out, and he said, go out there and tell them this. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. 
I've not come for the people that think they never fall short of even their own standard. I've not come for the perfect people. I've not come for the people that get it right every time. I did not come for the people that don't do guilt and don't do shame and don't do sin. I've come for the honest people, the people that know there's a standard out there that they will never meet. They don't even know where the standard came from. And the reason they know there's a standard out there is they're accountable to. Is even though they don't live up to that standard, they hold everybody else up to that standard. That's how we know there's a standard because we hold other people to it. We're going to talk about that next week. Isn't it interesting that thieves hate to be stolen from? Unfaithful people hate to be cheated on. Liars hate to be lied to. We all know what the standard is. We just don't live up to it. Because we just know. And Jesus said, I've come for the people who know that they're not all that good and they could be better. That's good news. But listen to this next part. I've come to call sinners to repentance. You know what that means? This may be the best news of all. And Hannah, if you could come up, please. But Jesus came to call them to see the entire world in a different way. To change their thinking about themselves. To change their thinking, as we'll see in a minute, about God. To change their thinking about the people around them. To change their thinking about everything. And to see themselves in a way that allows them to connect with God, their Heavenly Father, and to change from the inside out. That's the good news. Because here's what I know about you. Because it's also true of me. It's true of everyone else who has ever lived. We've tried and failed to change ourselves. It's virtually impossible. This was the invitation of Jesus to save you. And this is why people leaned in. Because they hoped there was something behind these words. It was good. How good was it? It just kept getting better. A whole new level of good. A stop and stare good. Because Jesus' followers were not only invited to be good, and unfortunately this is where the message of Christianity stops For way too many people, we just need to be good. That's where it stops for far too many. And I can't be that good. And the people that claim to be that good, they're not even that good. They're hypocrites. And I can't be part of that. And that's why so many people get turned off to Christianity. They've never heard the real good news. But Jesus didn't stop there. In fact, Jesus didn't even start there with being good. That's why Levi could follow him. He wasn't good. He called to his followers not to simply be good, but to do good. And here's what he said. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to be like me, if you're going to be someone that lives their lives in a way that embraces these kingdom values, because I've come to introduce the kingdom of God to earth, it's a brand new kind of kingdom. It's not a geographical kingdom. It's a kingdom of the heart. It's a kingdom of the soul. It's a kingdom of the spirit. And here's how it operates. I want you to do good, but I want you next level. I want you to do good to those who hate you. I want you to pray for those who mistreat you. Who does that, they would say, to which Jesus would say, buckle up, you're about to hear something about God that no one has ever told you before. And he said, if you do good to those who are good to you, that's just average, everybody does that. But God's greater than that. Because that's not remarkable at all. That brand of good has been around since the beginning of time. We always treat people we like well. Then he leans in and he says, come on, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything in return. And are you ready for the next part? This is when the people would gasp. This is when the people are blown away. This can't possibly be true. But if this is true, this changes everything. He said, if you are that good, if you embrace this level of good, this level of activity, if you choose to be good to those who mistreat you, and those who cheat on you, and those who aren't good in return, if you choose to be good to those who can't offer anything in return, you will be called children of the Most High. Why? Because that's what your Father in Heaven is like. That's who God is. He is good to those who hate Him. 
He is good to those who mistreat even those he loves because, you ready for this? This is brand new for them. This may be brand new thinking for you. This may not be the God you were presented with as a child because God loves the ungrateful. God loves the wicked. God loves the rebellious. God loves the failures. Wait, wait, Jesus. Okay, wait, you're telling me that you're representing God and you're telling me that God is kind to ungrateful people and wicked people? See, that's good news because I've been ungrateful. That's good news because I've been wicked. You see, if someone's view of God, whether they think any of this is true or not, they may continue to walk away and reject and walk right out of the faith. But you just need to understand that God that you're walking away from. You need to understand who he is. He is merciful to the ungrateful and the wicked. And this comes straight from the lips of Jesus. And this is confusing to us. And the reason that so many people reject God is because they can't wrap their heads around who God really is. Why? Because it's not how most Christians act. Why aren't, and we're going to talk about this in week three, so don't miss week three. Why is it that our reputation isn't like the reputation of the God that Jesus presented 2,000 years ago? Why aren't we known for being kind to the ungrateful and the wicked? Why are we not known for being merciful to the merciless? Why are we not known for serving the people who don't want to have anything to do with us? Why isn't our reputation so pristine that people are like, you know what, that's crazy. They're nuts. Just try to offend them. Just try to make them mad. Try to make them angry. Good luck. It's like they live in some alternative reality. It's like they some other kind of kingdom or something with completely different rules. Uh-huh. And I'll tell you why. Because too many Christians, and I hope we're not these kind, too many Christians for generations have been content to believe but not follow. Because believing doesn't make any difference in this life. It's following. It's doing that makes all the difference in the world. I'll believe. I'll acknowledge it's true. But I don't want to change. I don't want to do anything differently. This is why Jesus' initial invitation was, follow me, not listen to me. Because if you follow me, you'll discover that following me will make your life better and make you better at life. And you'll follow me because of who I am. And even at the outset, you're not sure it's all true, but you will know it's all good. Now listen to what he said next. Be merciful as your father is merciful. What's not to love about that? How is that not good? If you grew up in a version of Christianity where God wasn't merciful, I'm sorry. Because that's not the original version. That's not good news. Jesus' message was good news for the unrighteous, but it was threatening news to the self-righteous. And just so you know, there are no self-righteous followers of Jesus because the original version, the original presentation didn't make room for that. You can't be self-righteous and follow Jesus. At the beginning, very beginning, here's the announcement. Today, the angel said, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. Not a role model, not a celebrity, not a teacher, not a healer. A Savior. God addressed our most fundamental need right from the beginning. You need a Savior. I need a Savior. Your sins may be different than mine. Mine might be different than somebody else's. But we all need a Savior, and the playing field is level because in Romans 3.10, it says, no one is righteous, not even one. Not even rank. No one is righteous. Because we have all fallen short of our own standards. We've certainly fallen short of the standards of the people around us and what they set for us. And we have fallen short of that standard that we hold other people accountable to. And God says, here's the good and the bad news. You've fallen short of my standard. But I have good news of great joy for all people. And I'm not simply sending a second chance one more time. I'm not cutting back and sending five commitments rather than ten, you know, to make it easier. I'm sending you a Savior 
He's been born to you, and he is the Messiah, the Deliverer. He is God in human form. And at this point, you might be sitting here thinking, this is the weirdest Christmas message I've ever heard. But I think sometimes we take Christmas and pull it out of the rest of the gospel story. And we look at the birth of Jesus as this isolated incident. We separate it. Here's the story of baby Jesus. And then the rest of the year, we talk about the rest. And this year, I wanted to talk about and celebrate the wonder of the birth of Jesus, but connect it to everything else. You see, Jesus, the personification of everything good, did not come for his own good. He came for your good and mine. I love this one. Jesus said this, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know who wrote that? Matthew, which was the new name of the tax collector that we just talked about. Jesus gave his life for many, for the fall shorters, the not good enoughs. That's good news. He introduced and modeled the new version of good. And then he took all of our ungood, our sin, and on himself to create an on-ramp to a good God. And then he says to you and he says to me, follow me. Is Christianity good? Good for society? Good for the world? Good for your family? Good for you? Good for me? Luke thought so. Matthew thought so. Mark thought so. John thought so. Peter thought so. The Apostle Paul eventually thought so. James, the brother of Jesus, thought so. Many, many, many others thought so because the original version was good news, compelling news. And when it's presented in its most raw form, when it's presented in its clearest and most uncluttered, the goodness of God shines through. So if someone you know or maybe you yourself are having trouble buying it because it's never sounded good, maybe they've never heard the original it. Maybe they grew up with the wrong it. These people documented the story because they were convinced that his was not a life that was lived for a single generation, but for all generations. Not for one group of people, but for all people. Every nation, every generation. And it was, in fact, good news of great joy for everyone. Maybe especially for those of us who aren't and who haven't been and on our own never will be all that good. The Christmas story is a story of the goodness of God. And the goodness he didn't just bring into the world, he brought it to you. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? As we've talked about all these different aspects of the goodness of God and why Jesus came and why this birth took place 2,000 years ago, maybe you're here this morning and you've been struggling with your faith. Maybe you've been struggling with the legitimacy of your faith and is it really good? And maybe this was specifically for you this morning. Maybe it was for someone that you love and someone you're close to and you know they are, they are wrestling through these issues right now and they need to know the truth. Whatever it was, if this was for you, I want you to do some business with God right now because maybe the Holy Spirit's speaking to your heart right now saying, hey, this is your opportunity. Follow me. And I would like you to just stop where you're at right now and just whisper a prayer and say, God, I want this good news in my life. I want to follow you. And I want you to show me it's real as I go. And he will. He will. And if it's not you that this is for, if it's for a family member or a close friend or a coworker that maybe you've been praying for, and this morning God has just maybe equipped you to take this and to be the goodness of God to that person. 
And I want you to take a moment right now and pray and say, God, for so-and-so, for, for him and for her, for whoever that is in your life, God, would you use me to live this out, to show them what your goodness looks like so that, God, they can see past all the garbage that this world has gotten in the way of who you are. And so, God, as we sit here this morning and we all just kind of pray and, and, and wrestle through some of these issues at the end here, Lord, I just ask right now, that you would speak to each one of us. And God, I pray that you would solidify these truths in our hearts. God, help us to walk out of this place full of the goodness of God. As we go through this Christmas season, God, don't let it just be about your birth, but God, let it be about the life that began in that moment. Good news, great joy for all people. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.